Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, still available at all your finest retailers. Don't forget to leave us a review, please. Between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. And on today's episode, we're going to head to the pub and handle the beer news and, you know, what we've been enjoying recently in terms of drinking. Then we're going to go to the brewery to talk, well, some Canadian beer styles, something from Italy, and some of what Denny's brewing. And then into the lab where we're going to talk not only about Brett and co-pitching, but also about our feelings on science versus experience before we answer your questions and get you the hell out of here. Yep, it's going to be us talking a whole bunch today. But before we do all that, please sit back, take a listen to these messages from our sponsors. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a hub for homebrewers since 1978. Visit homebrewersassociation.org for recipes, brewing tips, and community. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Welcome back, and thank you for listening to those messages from our fine, fine sponsors. Remember, as always, if you have any interactions with our sponsors, make sure that you mention Experimental Brewing so they know they're spending their money kind of wisely. (laughs) Yeah, and that you guys are spending your money wisely because you're doing business with them. So uh, we want to talk about the new episode of The Brew Files that came out last week. It was episode 79 and called Chocolate City. Uh, it's about uh, how some people from Drew's Homebrew Club, the Maltose Falcons, got involved with Eagle Rock Brewing down there in Los Angeles and took one of their base beers, uh, a real favorite of Drew's called Solidarity, and apparently turned it into a chocolate beer. Is that correct? Well, we kind of embiggened it. And, in the and bigoted. I, I like that word. That's almost as good as Dick Chimp. Yeah. Uh, thanks, thanks to the Simpsons for that one. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, we embiggened it and turned it into what had been like a 3.8 beer into an 11 point something beer. And it kind of went weirdly squirrely as things do when you do that. <laughs> weirdly squirrely. I like that, man. And a lot of times weirdly squirrely can have really good results. Yeah, so if you listen to that episode, not only will you hear me talking to Lee Barkowski and Cullen Davis, uh, you will also hear later on in the episode of me sitting by my waterfall, tasting the beer, and giving you my notes and my experience. So 
Go and listen. It's kind of fun. You can hear water running. So between beer and a waterfall, you don't want to be too far from a bathroom, huh? Fortunately, I have two of them. <laughs> Very good. Now, don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA, Amazon, Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which is now newly announced for this part of the year. It is a charity called Not One More Vet, and this one uh, really gets to us. Uh, I don't know if you guys are aware of it, but veterinarians, the people who take care of the animals that we love, are two to four times more likely to commit suicide than your average population or doctor or anyone else. Not One More Vet is a nonprofit dedicated to providing support to the one in six veterinary professionals contemplating suicide. Their website is nomv.org, and you guys can help us help them by clicking on that Patreon link and giving a buck or two or whatever you can afford. Yeah, you guys know our rules. It's dogs, it's children. In this case, it's also the people who help take care of our furry friends. That's right. Give a buck. Please, please. And now, it's time for a beer. Yes, it is. We're going to take a quick break here and head over to the Experimental Brewing Pub. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about the beer life. So please stick around. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family farms to the world's finest brewers. With their new online store, YCH products are now available wherever brewers choose to shop. Browse the aisles of your local homebrew store or buy direct from YCH at shop.yakimachief.com. Also, experience the new YCH Mobile Solutions app, a free, sustainable alternative to the popular hop variety handbook with information on more than 120 hop varieties to help you make the best beer possible. Available now in the Apple Store or at Google Play. Sitting here at the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, and we are having a couple beers, and Drew's having dessert in a glass, it sounds like. Well, I'll tell you, it's actually better than dessert in a glass, and if you gave me a choice <laughs> between dessert or this, I'm going to take this. And this is a beer from one of my favorite breweries, Unibrew, uh, up there in Quebec, and it's their uh, Gâteau Forêt Noir, which is basically a black chocolate cake 
right? You know, so a Black Forest chocolate cake. Right. And it is a, a Belgian dark with spices and tart cherry juice added. And people in the Maltos Falcons will know that one of my beers that I always consider to be one of the best values that you can ever get in the craft beer world is the Trader Joe's Vintage Ale. Oh, yeah. Uh, every, every year they come out with a new version of this. It's always made by Unibrew and generally follows the same guidelines. And I think you can get a 750 of it for like six bucks. <laughs> yeah, man. It's, it's a great deal for an amazing beer. Unfortunately, it's not distributed here in Oregon anymore. So I really miss it. Well, there you go. It's still distributed down here. Well, a friend of mine who uh, helps as a beer buyer at one of our good liquor stores in the area said, Hey, I have this beer from Unibrew and I suspect it's the same sort of base as the vintage ale. And so he's like, Hey, do you want some of it? And I'm like, yes, of course. And this was uh, brewed originally, I think, for their 25th anniversary. And they brewed two beers. The U.S. got one beer last year. Canada got the the Black Forest cake uh, last year. And this year they flopped it. So now we get the Black Forest cake. And I will tell you, this beer is amazing. This is, if you're going to do a pastry-inspired beer, this is the way I want to have it. It is rich. It has all those chocolate flavors. The tart cherry juice actually comes through without sugar, but with the acid and the, you know, kind of the funkiness of the fruit to break through all the, the rich characters up front. And then it finishes perfectly dry. And it's amazing. Oh, oh man. My mouth is just watering. Uh, Unibrew always does a great, great job on the beers. I don't think I've ever had anything from them that was even close to not being excellent. I've so, had a few uh, things that I, that I wasn't necessarily a huge fan of, but yeah, in this case, this is an amazing beer. So if you can find the gateau, go find the gateau. It is well worth your time. Oh man, I'll have to keep my eyes open for that, just in case. And Denny, what are you drinking? Something seemingly like uncharacteristic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Who would have thought? Uh, I'm having a beer from L.A. Aleworks, a brewery that Drew introduced me to when I was down there in Los Angeles visiting a couple months ago. Uh, we went by, uh, got a chance to meet Kip, the brewer slash owner, and uh, he gave me some beers to bring back. Uh, one was an IPA that we tried there called Lunar Kitten. Now, right, they're near the JPL, right, which is why... Uh, no, no, all... they're, they're near SpaceX. JPL's oh, okay. up in my neck of the woods. They're down okay. in, uh, in Hawthorne next to the airport. Right. But many, uh, many of their beers have space-influenced names like uh, Lunar Kitten. This one was called Midnight Frisbee. And despite the midnight name, it was not a dark beer. It's an IPA. As a matter of fact, they call it a dank, juicy IPA. Juicy, J-O-O-S-E-Y. Because they have, a, they have an IPA called Me Seeks Juice from Rick and Morty. That's why, okay. they, that's why they use that phrase. Okay. Well, I had expected it to be a hazy IPA, and I had kind of like said to myself, okay, all of Kip's beers were so good, I'm going to give this one a try, hazy or not. And I opened it up, and pleasant surprise, it poured clear. It was wonderful. And contained two of my favorite hops, Equinot and Columbus. It's a 7.6% beer. Paula had a, uh, a Lunar Kitten while I was drinking this, and we kind of traded back and forth. Two excellent, excellent IPAs. Uh, and uh, please, please give Kip my compliments because these are my kind of beers. Yeah, and Lunar Kitten's one of his flagships. So, yeah, he, he's, he does an amazing job. Kip's been on the Brew Files before when we talked about the Cool Ship. And somehow in that space that he's in, he's got a really nice space. He's managing to keep 25 to 30 beers on tap. Different I know, beers. man. 
It's amazing. The guy must just brew all the time. Yeah, they're they're pretty they're pretty hard on cycling, so it's kind of amazing to see. And I'm really happy that Kip is doing so well down there. And yeah, uh, his juicy IPAs, even his hazy IPAs, aren't super hazy, but they they always have a nice crisp bitterness to them, which is what I really like. Yeah, I agree, man. I had expected a low bitterness, uh, kind of like orange juice type IPA, and it wasn't, and I was very pleasantly surprised. I just loved uh, those beers. Uh, everything that I tried of Kip's was great. So uh, should you be lucky enough to be able to grab a beer from L.A. Ale Works, I highly recommend you do it. Uh, my experience is that anything there is going to be something that you'll love. Yeah, and it's almost a shame that you don't have anybody who works right near there who could pick you up some. Well, what's more of a shame is that I do have somebody who works right near there who, if you picked it up, would never ship it to me anyway. I might drink it first. <laughs> <laughs> so that just means you buy twice as much, right? Yeah, and I have twice as much to drink. And okay. right, speaking of twice as much to drink and half as much to actually get drunk on, the remember in the last episode we talked about the 450 North, uh, their slushy XL thing that was happening, the their super-fruited Bologna vices that they had been advertising at 8% ABV, and it turned out they were more like 2.6, 2.8. Well... People complain to the uh, state of Indiana, you know, specifically the alcohol beverage control folks there, because there are rules about what it means when you list alcohol on something. And the rules are generally breweries get about a 0.3% leeway. You know, you can, you can say something's 5.8 and have it be 6.1 or all the way down to 5.5. But generally, the state frowns on you being too inaccurate with your alcohol labels. <laughs> Like or, off by 6%? Yeah. So uh, they've had registered uh, a few complaints. They said, I think, four. And I think a lot of that was from people who were upset that they had paid way too much money for a four-pack of, you know, essentially fruit juice. And the state opened up an investigation and then announced that they had closed the investigation after a five-minute phone call with the brewery. <laughs> Literally. Well, that makes it easy, huh? Yeah. So that's kind of interesting. And... I mean, if this was a sort of a typical case where, you know, it's like the homebrewers had opened up a professional brewery, I could maybe see a reason to kind of go, okay, first offense, you know, don't be dummies. But apparently the people who own 450 North also own a winery. So this is not their first trip in the rodeo, you know, with calculating alcohol percentage. So, hmm. So, what was the result of the investigation? I mean, did, oh, were there no any harm, kind no of foul. sanctions? Okay, okay. No, so, no foul. We had, so we had just a five keep minute, doing it. Yeah, we had a five-minute discussion, and and you know, uh, it was apparent it, it was apparent there was an honest mistake. <laughs> okay, uh, I guess I can give them that, and let's just see if it happens again. Uh, I have a hard time giving them that, but that's me. Okay. Math is hard. Hey, I, I'm in a forgiving mood today. There you go. Uh, also, in the sort of uh, weird business news, Miller Coors, you know, the big old conglomerate that owns Miller and Coors now, they've announced that they are closing their Irwindale plant. Now, where is Irwindale, you ask? Uh, Irwindale is about, I don't know, 10 minutes drive away from my house. Um, and it is the big plant that has served, you know, essentially Los Angeles and the Southern California region forever. But Miller Coors is basically saying that they have excess capacity. You get, remember a couple of years ago, they closed the Eden, North Carolina plant. Now they're closing Irwindale because they're not selling the same amount of beer and they have more capacity in the other plants that they have as well. So the reason why I bring this up, and I think this is interesting, is not only is this like 500 jobs in my area that are going away, but 
y'all will remember last year we talked about Pabst and Miller having a spat of the legal variety because Pabst has been brewed by Miller for years and years and years. And then they, when Miller closed the Eden plant, they were basically saying, oh, we don't have the capacity to be able to brew you anymore. And Pabst had apparently offered to buy the brewery. And they'd made an offer on it. And then Miller turned around and said, well, how about you give us $750 million for it? Which the Pabst folks rejected because it would be the cost of building their own brand new facility. Apparently, this closure and the settlement that they had with Pabst in the last year gives Pabst the right to make an offer on this brewery somewhere in the $150 million range. Well, man, you should just go pick it up. Oh, I know. Yeah, right. I'll just take that right out of my pocket chain. Yeah, right? uh, just, actually, just write a check. Yeah, actually, uh, boys and girls, here's what we're going to announce today is the Experimental Brewing Podcast is now going to be the Experimental Brewing Company you know, out of <laughs> Irwindale, California. And all we're going to make is hazy IPAs and pastry stouts. There you go. And, and don't forget the hard seltzer. Um, yeah, right. But what I think is interesting about this is that if Pabst does actually pick up the brewery, even though Pabst has been headquartered in Los Angeles for a number of years, you know, I mean, really, they're, they're a brewery without a brewery, they've been headquartered here. This will be their first brewery that they would have had in Los Angeles since they sold their original plant that was here to Miller, who then moved out to Irwindale. That old brewery block is now actually an artist colony in downtown L.A. So this could actually <laughs> signal the return of Pabst to the L.A. area, which actually is kind of cool. So basically, uh, the hipster beer has now become an artist colony? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's actually there's, a really cool There's space. something just right about that, you know? Yeah, I mean, they did, and it's not like what they did in Portland with, say, like the, the, the Pearl District and when Henry's went away. You know, they kind of tore the Henry plant down and turned it into something new. This is actually in downtown L.A. They call it the brewery, uh, the brewery art complex. And they took the existing facilities and then sort of subdivided them into a bunch of different studios. And I have a friend in the club who used to work in there, and so he's... He took us around one time and said, oh, yeah, the, the, that's, where that's where I used to work because that was the fermentation cellar. And then over there is packaging, et cetera, et cetera. And you can still see all the stuff up in the, in the air, like all the lines. So that's irrespective of this. But we may have Paps coming back to L.A. So, yay. <laughs> yay, I guess. You know, whatever. Hey, why not? And then in other closing news. Yeah, uh, man, this time, in Colorado, huh? Yeah, so Boulder Brewing Company has also been in the news over the past year or so because – they had said, okay, well, hey, look, we're no longer going to be able to brew and distribute our beer. We're closing down our, our footprint and our production brewery. And that happened. And, of course, that shook everybody because Boulder Beer is 40 years old. They are, I think, Colorado's oldest craft brewery now. Um, and they still were going to operate their brew pub. And then they signed a deal with a, brewing, a brewery called Sleeping Giant. And Sleeping Giant was going to pick up doing the production work so that things like uh, Hazed and Confused and Mojo IPA and, and all these could stay out there on the, on the shelves. Um, but they were still going to operate the brew pub because the group that owns Boulder Brewing Company apparently also has other restaurants. And they're like, yeah, we'll keep the restaurant up and running with the beer. Uh, they apparently got some sort of offer that was too good to refuse and have decided to sell it. And they are shutting down the, uh, the brew pub. And by the time you hear this, the brew pub will no longer be in business. So uh, kind of interesting to see this brewery that was kind of a fundamental brewery of the of the start of the craft beer revolution now sort of becoming a ghost. 
but you know that's not really too unusual. We're seeing that happen uh, all over. Look at uh, look at the flagship breweries in Portland, you know, that have closed down and stuff like that. So, um, you know, maybe maybe there's a finite length to uh, when how long most breweries can be around. Yep, maybe, but it'll be it'll be interesting to see what happens with this particular model. Yep. And now, from the how much nothing can you take department, <laughs> uh, there has just recently been an announcement that Bud Light is launching a hard seltzer line. Now, just a, a second one. Yeah, right. Okay, yeah, as if Bud Light having one hard seltzer line wasn't enough. I, you know, I am just having a really hard time wrapping my head around Bud Light seltzer. But their announcement here. Let me just let me just read to you what they say here. Bud Light Seltzer is an easy-drinking hard seltzer with a hint of delicious fruit flavor to deliver the most refreshing taste possible. It is 100 calories, 5% ABV, has less than one gram of sugar, and comes in four great flavors, black cherry, mango, lemon-lime, and strawberry. It is the perfect hard seltzer. Excuse me, there's an oxymoron for you. It is the perfect hard seltzer for any occasion using a unique five-step filtration process and the highest quality ingredients like sparkling water, real cane sugar, and natural fruit flavor. Yep. So I, I, I don't mean to uh, to insult any of you who are hard seltzer fans. It's obvious that we're not big fans of it. But... You know, just the very thought of Bud Light hard seltzer makes my head spin. Well, I mean, okay, so let's step back. I mean, ABI's had Bon and Viv for uh, a couple of years now. Obviously, everybody's trying uh, trying to play a catch-up game with White Claw. Now, what's interesting to me is that Bud Light was down 5-6% last year in terms of sales. Um, and they've been doing this thing for a number of years where they've been doing brand extensions off of Bud Light. Ever since Bud Light's become sort of the premier beer out of uh, Anheuser-Busch, they've been doing all these different things, you know, Bud Light Platinum, uh, Bud, uh, Bud Light Limerita, and all the different Aritas that are out there. Bud and, Light Heavy. Well, yeah, well, that was Bud Light Platinum. <laughs> oh, um, but yeah, the uh, it'll be interesting to see how this goes because... I mean, obviously, Anheuser-Busch has the clout and everything else to be able to push this hard. Bud Light itself has a huge name recognition. They're going to launch this. Actually, they've already launched it in the town of Seltzer, PA. And they're going to launch it nationwide at the time, timing with the Super Bowl and an ad campaign. So, ABI has the ability to put a lot of money behind this. It'll be interesting to see how much power they can get around it. Or if this is going to be another one of those things that they've done in the past where they bring something out with... Big fanfare, like, uh, what was it, Budweiser Black a few years back. Um, bring it out with big fanfare, and then it slowly fades away over the course of two, three years. <laughs> because people are going, Bud Light Seltzer? Yeah, I'm, it's just, it's a thing. Yeah, so, right. But this does, you know, I mean, look, look, we make fun of the hard seltzer thing. Um, and I make fun of the hard seltzer thing as a gin, a gin and tonic drinker. But it does play into what we've talked about in the past, which is there is an increased sort of health consciousness movement inside the alcohol industry, at least in terms of products being pushed for that purpose. So it's not all just pastry salts and big IPAs and all this sort of stuff. There is now very much a trend towards producing lower calorie, healthier beers, and not just lower calorie, but like 
lower carb count and all that sort of fun stuff. Um, and one of the places that we're seeing this is a locale IPA trend. I know, locale IPA, and slapping the, those magical three letters on anything to try and get sales. Um, and the reason why I bring this up is last year we saw Dogfish had had a very successful launch of their uh, Slightly Mighty IPA. Uh, Denny, have you had that? No, I haven't. I wasn't even aware of it. I'm going to have to uh, keep my eyes open. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And there are a few others launched into the market, but now also the reason why I'm bringing them now is Stone, of all people, has announced a new beer that they're calling Never Ending Haze. So Stone is not only kind of taking advantage of you know sort of this low-calorie IPA, but they're also piggybacking, I think, as well on the huge success that Sierra Nevada had last year with the um, their their hazy uh, hazy little thing IPA and you know sort of combining the two trends together I'll be really curious to see how this works uh, hazy little IPA was one of the few real big bright spots sales wise for Sierra Nevada last year um, but I'm curious because on the one hand I want to look at this and go why are you guys calling this an IPA isn't this really just a, a pale ale or god forbid we call it a bitter um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's the, you know, is this really just the same thing? Is it something distinct? I and mean, for a while there was the whole notion of the extra pale ale, which this seems to also kind of come into that same category on. But at the same time, I, as much as I want to kind of scratch my head and look at it that way, I also am happy that people are making interesting hoppy beers at a lower alcohol level so that you can enjoy them without the extra calorie hit or necessarily the extra alcohol or extra health hit. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Uh, it's right up my alley for what I'm looking for. Uh, as a matter of fact, just yesterday I had, uh, one of the, uh, bail breaker session IPAs mm -hmm. and you know, it's not necessarily a locale IPA, but it's, it's a session IPA down around 5% and, Really, really nice hot profile. Just an absolutely delicious beer. So uh, I'm I'm real happy to see more low calorie beers and styles I like coming up. Who knows? Might even get me to drink a hazy. Well, here's the question, and we'll put this out there to the audience as well. Um, have it, how would you think about going about brewing one of these? Oh man. Well, I mean the the traditional method is to start with a low OG and then get a really low final gravity too. Mm -hmm. Maybe uh, you know, uh, I'm wondering if there's the use of some enzymes in there, like the stuff that people have been using for birds. Yeah. Or, you know, but then you got to combat that with like, okay, well, do you have enough of a body in order to really? Withstand a big hop right. charge. Right, and that's, that's always the uh, the question when you're trying to make a low-alcohol beer. I mean, low-alcohol generally equates to low-calorie, too. So, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and that is that is always a challenge. That's what I found out when I was trying to formulate my American Mild, that it was real, real difficult to keep the body and flavor in a beer that doesn't have a ton of ingredients. So if these guys can do that, more power to them. Well, and I think it's time for us to get technical and start digging in. And I think that's maybe a, a, a topic for us to explore later this year. How do we make our own session locale IPA something or other American beer? <laughs> yeah, well, let me see. We'll, we'll infiltrate stone and do some industrial espionage. And then the experimental brewery can do it along with our uh, hazy IPAs pastry stouts. There you go. Low-calorie IPA coming soon from Irwindale. <laughs> yeah, don't hold your breath. All right, well, speaking of brewing, let's go brew. <laughs> 
Yeah, I agree, man. Uh, let's head over to the brewery, talk about some Canadian beers, uh, an Italian beer, and what we've been brewing. We're going to be right back, so please stick around. Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Y-Yeast is redefining wintry mix this quarter, so we invite you to toast these new exclusive releases as we head into the new year. An original from our early days, 1087 Y-Yeast Bohemian Ale Blend is being released for the first time ever to homebrewers. Look forward to the qualities of this versatile blend in your next British or American style ales. 1882 Thames Valley Ale 2 returns for its crisp, dry, and malty profile and the ability to produce bright bitters and dark ale styles. And if you're seeking a cold-savvy yeast for winter brewing, 2105 Rocky Mountain Lager is ideal for North American and light lagers. These Y-East Originals are released now through the end of March and are available for a limited time at your local homebrew shop. Find out more at yeastlab.com. Welcome back, and welcome to the brewery. We are sitting here with all the equipment going around us. There's burners going. There's stainless steel gleaming. Uh, You guys know the drill. It's all the usual stuff, except that we're heading north this time, and we're going to talk about some unofficial Canadian beer styles. Right. So in the last BJCP guideline update, you know, they started to allow the sort of notion of local beer styles and local beer guidelines with the idea that these would be adjunct things that could possibly be incorporated into a competition, maybe even possibly incorporated into future guidelines. And I think the first example where everybody got their uh, noses tweaked, we're happy about it, was with our friends down in Florianopolis with their, you know, their vice beers with a lot of fruit, right? Uh, And so just doing the usual sort of trolling of the internet that I do all the time, I started looking around at some things, and of course, you know, we have our friends up in Canada as well, and there was, uh, there's an author who's attached to the Canada Homebrewing Association, right, the Canadian Homebrewing Association, Uh, and everybody say hi to Kathy. Uh, Hi, Kathy. On the the governing committee. Uh, But uh, Victor North, who is associated with that uh, committee, uh, also put together a couple things, and last year, and I only caught, uh, caught this, or actually, sorry, 2018, he put this together, and I only just caught this now put together a series of Canadian beer styles that he wanted to, you know, be able to either use in Canadian competitions or, you know, propose to the BJCP to go use. And we'll include a link to the guidelines because I think it's kind of interesting to read other people's guidelines and try and decide, wait, does this, how does this incorporate against the ideas of things I know as beer? 
And so he proposed four different styles. One of which the first one was an Ontario pale ale, which is sort of based on, um, it kind of looks like a, basically a halfway point between an American pale ale and an English pale ale in terms of malt character and whatnot. Yeah, man, it looks like it's right up my alley because it uses both crystal malts and uh, sea hops. Yep, and exactly. And so, you know, talking about a moderately high multi profile with caramel notes and toasty notes, uh, in a lot of ways, it almost comes off to me as like a, an amber, like an American amber, but with less aggression. Um, and you know, it was kind of interesting because he also includes a lot of history in here about where the style came from and how it's evolved over time, which is really cool. Yeah. Okay. And now you got to pronounce the next one. Oh, no, I'm going to let you do that one. <laughs> a Quebecois Russe. There you go. That'd be about how I'd say it too. Um, and this was interesting because it's basically, again, it's another pale ale, but with a lot of, uh, uh, roasted malt in it. So almost, um, not quite a black IPA, but more of a very dark pale ale. Yeah, it says uh, sessionability is important to this style, and uh, the beer can resemble Irish red ales, American amber ales, or something in between. Yeah, so again, in that same sort of uh, red tone. And again, you can kind of see, I mean, you can get into some arguments about how much of this is like, you know, hair splitting. Right. Or, you know, being like, you know, in the Goodfellas using a razor blade to slice the garlic. Uh, <laughs> well, and, you know, he makes clear that these are not uh, officially sanctioned BJCP yep. styles. It's just kind of his attempt to characterize some of the beers he's seeing made up there. I mean, for this one in particular, he says it can resemble anything from international amber lager to amber Belgian ales. So, you know, that's uh, he's really defining a lot of it by character. Yep. And again, that's part of the point of this whole idea of the supplemental uh, guidelines for the BJCP. Now, the two that are, are very distinct, I think, are the uh, C3, which is the spruce beer. Yeah. Go ahead, say it. Go ahead, pronounce that. No. Beer uh, Depinet. Yeah. Somewhere in that area, but uh, a spiced amber ale, but spiced very particularly with uh, evergreens. And he has, uh, again, the interesting part to me, and we'll, I'm going to try and get him on the program because he just wrote a brand new thing that plays directly into this, but talking about spruce beer in terms of indigenous history and how that then got adopted by the colonists uh, who came into Canada. And again, same sort of thing with that big amber sort of character, amber copper type thing, but with then that big, you know, evergreen sprucey type um, uh, uh, flavor and aroma to it and talking about how it's traditionally, you know, kind of a non-alcoholic drink and an alcoholic version and then, you know, about how the whole thing came about from supposedly, according to history, and remember what hi beer history is, you know, from uh, people in near Quebec City. Right. So I thought that was interesting. And the final one would be one that I would definitely say is definitely Canadian, at least in origin. And that's ice beer, or as they term it here in the guidelines, Canadian ice beer. And if you were a person of beer drinking awareness age, not necessarily of age, but at least awareness <laughs> in the nineties, you will have remembered the ice wars, you know, not ice box wars, but the ice wars and, you know, the whole history of Molson, Labatt and Budweiser all making ice beers, which by the way, actually still exist. I was surprised by this, but really? they do actually still exist. Um, and basically, you know, a lager that's brewed and slightly frozen to, you know, remove ice crystals and yeast and, and impurities, except for as uh, Victor puts into the guidelines, 
exactly what the processes is and what the effects are is relatively unknown because a lot of it's wrapped up in trade secrets. And apparently different people have different processes in place. Go figure. And like some of them are making stronger beer out of this and some of them are letting the ice crystals dilute back. Just very interesting. Yeah, really. Uh, and I, you know, I think it's really cool that these have come out. I mean, it's like official or not, it's great to be able to describe and maybe put a name to some of the local styles uh, wherever you are. Well, and again, even if people want to sit there and argue that, hey, you know, this isn't its own unique style. It really belongs to this subset. To me, what I think is interesting is capturing the history, capturing that snapshot. And if you don't think that's useful, I don't know who you are. <laughs> Yeah. And speaking of beers from other countries, we're heading across the ocean now to Italy. Uh, I got a Facebook message this morning from a gentleman whose name I'm about to butcher, uh, named Jacopo Deola. Uh, he's from Italy, and uh, he contacted me because uh, he wanted to find some American homebrewing groups on Facebook. And he mentioned that he had made an award-winning Session Smash IPA using Y-East 1450. So, of course, I needed to know more about that, and Jacob sent me the recipe. You got it up there in front of you, Drew? I do. And so we're going to do some rough translation from uh, metric to English units, and obviously we'll include the metric. Um, but <laughs> yeah. This is for a 23-liter batch, which is a little bit more than uh, five gallons. Um it uses five kilograms of Golden Promise, so that's about, what, 11 pounds of uh, yep. Golden Promise? Yep. And, you know, mashing in at, I think we said, what, 154? Yep. Uh, AKA 68 uh, degrees Celsius for 40 minutes and then allowing it to rest and then taking it up to mash out. And then during the boil, here's where we get wonky because, boy, again, remember, yeah. this is a smash. So 25 grams or, you know, a little bit less than an ounce of citra uh, for 30 minutes. And then with five minutes left in the boil, adding 50 grams or a little under two ounces of citra for that five minutes. And then in Whirlpool, adding 75 grams or again, a little less than three ounces of citra. So there's a lot of citra so far. Uh, and then finally, dry hopping with 100 grams or about four ounces of citra. Um, and the beer itself is supposed to come out at about 1050. And it's supposed to calculate it has 36 IBUs, which, right. wow, I, I'm actually surprised. <laughs> I would have, I would have, ex I would have expected from that much Citra, a lot higher IBU count. Yeah. And, well, he, he starts at 30, so that's got to help. But yeah, really, man, that's, that's kind of interesting. That's um, a metric ton of hops. <laughs> it is a metric ton of hops. Uh, and, and, and then, of course, let's not forget what the yeast strain is. Uh, why, of course, the yeast strain is Y Yeast 1450, Denny's favorite. And it certainly is. Um, he said that uh, he got uh, more attenuation than he was expecting. The, the recipe uh, here says that it should end at 1017. I don't know exactly what. Uh, his ended at, but he said it, it attenuated more than he had expected it to. And, and see, that's what's strange to me is that for a beer that starts at 1050, 1017 seems like an awfully high final gravity. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. And I said something to him about I don't generally uh, trust. FG estimates from software, and he said, "Oh, no, this one is is usually very accurate. I don't know what software it is." Uh, 
so at any rate, uh, he, that's what he was expecting. It went lower than that. So, uh, I'll have to find out exactly where it finished and we'll let you guys know. So that's the recipe. This is uh, an award winning Italian smash session IPA. Uh, you know, I'm not exactly sure what temperature he fermented at. I would recommend right around 63 ish for a Y East 1450. But, uh, you guys give it a try. If anybody does it, let us know what you think. And by the way, for those of you who have been very happy that we've been using Celsius units and metric units this whole time, Denny's recommending to go about 17.2 degrees Celsius. <laughs> Thank you very much. I did not have the conversion up here in front of me. And uh, unfortunately, I just can't pull it out of my head like that. All right. And last but not least, you know, we've gone from Canadian beer styles to brewing in Italy. And why don't we go brew in that strangest of lands? Oregon. No tie in no tie land here. Yeah, I finally uh, got around to brewing last week. Uh, my no tie brown ale and American brown. This was the first beer I ever won any kind of award for about 20 years ago. And I've tweaked the recipe a bit since then, but it is still just one of my absolute favorite beers to brew. The last couple times I've done it, I've been uh, fortunate enough to get some finishing hops from Michigan. Uh, this beer, unlike a lot of beers, ends up uh, with a couple ounces of Chinook in the Whirlpool at the very end. And our dear friends Jeff and Susan Rankard, who live in Michigan, sent me some Chinooks from Michigan. Now, I think we've probably talked about this before, but whereas uh, Chinook grown here in the Northwest has this kind of like piney and dank character to it. Uh, Chinook from Michigan has a lot of pineapple kind of flavor and aroma to it. And even though there's a lot, it's relatively subtle. So it goes just beautifully in this beer uh, against the kind of like chocolatey uh, malt background from it. So, you know, I, that's, that's what I did. I've been jonesing to get that brew in, and finally the stars aligned, and I was able to do it. Terroir matters, y'all. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It certainly does, and that's one of the more dramatic examples of it you'll find. Well, now, this wasn't your first time brewing them, you said, right? No, 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 no. They, they had, Jeff and Susan had sent me some of these Michigan Chinooks for a previous batch. I used them all up, and uh, when we were at Hop and Brew School, I mentioned how much I enjoyed them. So they sent me some more, along with another Michigan hop called Copper. I know almost nothing about the, the origins of Copper, where it came from, what it was bred from. I guess I'm going to have to dig into that and find out. But apparently it's very highly valued around there. And uh, they sent me uh, an ounce or two of that that I still need to get around to playing with. Yeah, let's see. It says here, uh, Michigan Copper Hops, a proprietary hop of uh, Great Lake Hops, uh, and was released in 2015. Super vigorous, uh, super aroma hop with very fragrant floral and tropical fruit aromas and flavors. So kind of interesting. A fairly, fairly broad mix of uh, oils in it. So does it, does it say what it was bred from? Uh, not here, okay. not where I'm looking, but, uh, yeah, no, that sounds, oh, wait, here, hold on. Let's, let's see. So looking at the, uh, Great Lake Hops uh, website, they say it's a floral, tropical fruit punch, pepper, and cherry, which is interesting. Um, and alpha acids range between 8.8 .8 and 10.5 with the beta acids about 2.4 to 3.5. And obviously IPA, 
Um, and I'm looking here and they, they don't give anything that I'm seeing here for what its sources were. Um, but it is an interesting looking hop. So that's, uh, that's going to be kind of cool to see. And yeah, apparently it, you can, you can buy it, uh, in terms of, uh, the, the root stock itself or the rhizome stock. Oh, interesting. Say. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's, uh, on the list for my next brew whenever the heck that comes about. But I, I am really, really curious to give it a try. I'll probably just go for a, a pale ale or something so I can load a whole bunch in at the end and find out what it's like. That sounds good to me. All right. <laughs> Tell you what, man, you send me some LA Ale Works beer and I'll send you some of the Michigan Copper beer. There you go. I think we can manage that. Yeah, but I'm not I'm not shipping until I receive yours. Okay, fine. I'll pick them up <laughs> next time I go to work. Cool. Okay, I think it's about time that we head over to the lab and talk about Britannomyces and some new findings about that, huh? Yep, and uh, also our thoughts on science versus experience. That's right. So stick around. We're going to be right back. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publishing books of enduring value for amateur and professional brewers, as well as titles that promote understanding and appreciation of American craft beer. Visit BrewersPublications.com to learn more. Welcome to the lab. We're going to be getting all labby over here today, uh, talking about some findings that showed up on the Milk the Funk wiki. If you guys are not uh, familiar with Milk the Funk, it is a Facebook group dedicated to the brewing of sour beers, and uh, there are some incredibly experienced people, including our friend Brandon Jones. And, and Bob uh, Sylvester. And Bob Sylvester, and just a wealth of information about this topic. So yeah. they have recently come out with some interesting info uh, concerning the use of Brett and Sacro together. Yeah, well, I don't know how recent this is, I, you know, because Dan Pixley, who Dan Pixley, who is sort of moderator of Milk the Funk and one of the hosts of their Milk the Funk podcast, also does. A bananas job of maintaining this wiki at milkofthefunk.com. And I went looking the other day because I'm writing some stuff about Saison and my thoughts on Saison, particularly my thoughts on Saison and Britannomyces and uh, the potential overuse by American brewers. Yeah, that's going to make me popular. Um, oh, man, but I so agree with you. Yeah, um, and I wanted, to, I wanted to not just be negative, but also provide my feedback and, and went to the went to the wiki just to double check my assumptions because some of the things I'd been taught early on as Burr was, oh, well, you know, if you want to control how much impact that you have, then you have to, you know, pitch less, you know, pitch less. It will, it'll get out competed by the Saccharomyces and it won't contribute as much flavor. If you go and you look at the Milk Funk uh, wiki, they talk about this sort of stuff and they've actually, you know, dug in and done some experiments of their own and also done some, uh, 
review of various scientific articles that are out there. And pretty much it seems that the, the primary thing out there that impacts the amount of brunt character that you get into it is not the pitching rate. It's the pitching timing. And so, in other words, it doesn't matter if you only pitch a half a bit of brunt. It's more important as to when you actually pitch it. And so, uh, MB Reigns, uh, Dr. MB Reigns, who I learned a lot of yeast stuff from, she taught me how to do uh, Lambics. And her whole thing was about pitching cultures at different periods of time to mimic the natural rise and fall of cultures in a Lambic beer. And so, I learned to always pitch Britannomyces light. Well, then later on, I learned from Tommy Arthur down at uh, Port Brewing, Lost Abbey Brewing, that if you pitch 100% Brett and no Saccharomyces, you get a very clean beer, surprisingly. And so looking through the milk funk to, you know, remind myself about this stuff and, you know, verify that I wasn't, you know, spreading lies and rumors and half-truths that I remember from my early days as a brewer, I'm pleased to see that, you know, a lot of that stuff, other than the pitching rate, still holds up and true. So basically the rules of thumb are if you want more Brett funk, more Brett hooey, you pitch the Brett late. So you let the beer start with Saccharomyces, you let that go and start to take down the gravity, and then sometime later you add the Brett and then you give it time to age. And over that time, you'll actually develop more Brett character than you would if you do instead pitch the Brett and the Saccharomyces at the same time. That is just like stunning and totally contrary to what we've always been told. Well, I mean, you think about it, right? Yeah, because you would expect, oh, hey, there's more sugar there. There's more food for the, the Brett to feed on that, you know, oh, well, then it's obviously going to throw more stuff. But it turns out a lot of the a lot of the hooey factor, I think, if I'm interpreting these results correctly, a lot of the hooey factor comes from essentially forcing the Brett down metabolic pathways that are more starvation mode based. Does that make sense? Um, and therefore, they produce those when there's that. If there's plenty of sugar, they don't go down those pathways. Interesting stuff. Man, really, really. Uh, one place where science really helps out, huh? Yep, exactly. And so, again, milkthefunk.com. You can find their wiki there. You can find a giant pile of information, particularly most of it, obviously, about brewing funky. They, they don't like the term wild, but funky or sour beers, um, or mixed culture beers. Let's call it that way. And even then, even if that's not your necessarily your cup of tea, you can still learn a lot of stuff in here. And so that's a that's a really good thing to see some of my some of my things I've known being backed up, and then seeing some of the things where oh no, that's not right. Okay, good. Yeah. And speaking yeah. of that, speaking of that, uh, we're going to kind of get a little philosophical here, uh, and this really came to mind based on. Uh, on a conversation that we've been having on the AHA discussion forum, uh, it all began when a guy asked about setting a bucket outside in the snow or fermenter outside in the snow to uh, cool his word. I got into uh, a kind of a discussion of no chill, and I had mentioned that uh, I had several times uh, taken a keg of hot wort from the Zymatic and closed it up and just let it cool at room temperature, to which I was roundly treated to uh, exclamations of that can't possibly work. You'll get infected beer. The wort will cool. It will shrink. It will suck air in through the seal. And all these people made extremely valid scientific points, 
but none of this stuff has ever happened to me. So that got me thinking about the kind of disconnect sometimes between science and your own personal experience. What do you do? What do you think when science says one thing is going to happen, but yet your experience says, no, it didn't work out like that? I mean, I I have to go with my experience every time. Uh, I you know it's not that I don't respect science. Uh, you know, you guys know that uh, a lot of my brewing is is founded on that. But what I have found personally is that if I try science and things don't work out that way, or if I try something and it doesn't work out the way science says it should, I, I, what can I do? I have to go with my experience. Uh, what what do you think, man? How do, how do you deal with that? Well, I mean, I think the milk funk thing is a perfect example. Um, one of the things I think that we get way too hung up on is you have to remember almost all of the brewing science out there has been done at the behest of commercial breweries, right? Large and small. Uh, and commercial breweries have very different needs, very different expectations, and you know a lot of very different variables involved in their brewing process than we do as homebrewers. Not to mention so, they've got they've got a lot at stake financially, so they really can't afford to take too many chances with things that might not turn out well. Right. So my my problem is that a lot of times the science and I I think you see this with the experiments that we've done, you see this with the experiments that you see out of brewlosophy and other people's experiments as well. Homebrewers work in a different sphere. And science, science's answers to things are about very specific questions. Now, with the discussion that we've been having on the HA forum, you know, a lot of that does come down to, yes, you're right, you know, pressure will allow this to happen, right? You, know, you get a 4% cooling factor over time, that will create a vacuum inside the keg and ba-da-da-da-da. Um, and we're going to talk more about this next week, and boy, are we going to have fun with it because I imagine people are going to be upset. Oh, yeah. Um, and then there's also the other concern that was expressed, and it's an absolutely valid concern, which is, you know, hot, the hot wort, the pH is not, the, the pH is not sufficient for you to be able to avoid but, uh, or deactivate botulism just from boiling, right? You have to do other things. And I've talked about this when I make my pressure can starter warts. The reason why I pressure can is because I want the wort to be sterile, and I need to be sure that the botulism has been killed as well. And... The answer to that is, yes, you are absolutely correct, but at our scale, the odds of you having botulism in your wort, particularly for the short period of time that we're talking about allowing a, a keg to cool naturally overnight, is damn near nil. Right. And again, a lot of the times when I do this, it's after I've been using the zymatic. So the keg has been sitting there with boiling wort in it, uh, you know, and, and it's in, pretty much in effect. Uh, sterilized by the time uh, we get done. Yep. Now, having said all this, yeah, you know, I'm not. Uh, if I find a conflict between science and my experience, what it makes me want to do is go out and figure out where the gap is. Right. And so I think that's part of what we try to address here on the show is why, uh, you know, why is this gap? And I'm going to tell you, I think most of the time the gap is just sheerly a matter of scale. Yeah, I, I think so too. And. To me, it's like as much as I love and trust science, I mean, I was a chemistry major for God's sake. I also have learned that maybe all science doesn't always apply. Well, as our, as our, you know, 
inspirations, click and clack, say, reality often astonishes theory. That's right. I was just going to say that. Yeah, so we'd like to hear from you guys what you think of this dilemma. If you've run across it, if so, which way do you tend to lean? I mean, again... Well, and- and what, where have you run into this dilemma? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, it's like I tend to go with science until I find out that the science doesn't apply to what I was just doing, and then I'll go and try my experience. So let us know how you guys approach it, uh, what you've found in your own brewing. Yep, podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can hit us on Facebook. You can leave us a voicemail or a text message at 626-765-1AL. So, yeah, so please bring us, your, in, bring us your information. Yeah, get involved in this discussion. We want to hear from you guys, too, because as you probably know, we don't know everything. And speaking of not knowing everything, let's go, <laughs> so let's go talk about things that we do know about. Yeah, well, at least we hope we do. We're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we're going to be answering some questions. We're going to do the quick tip and something other, and then we're going to call it a day. So please stick around. We're going to be right back. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their 8th generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. Welcome back. It is time to answer some questions and wrap things up today. So Drew's going to take the first question, which comes from Adam Edwards. And Adam says, maybe I'm completely outside my understanding here, but why doesn't anyone try to make a malt that converts at room temp in water, or at least a much lower temp? Yes, I understand that such conversions are inherently part of the grain and probably have some greater reasoning behind the temperatures. But now that we can have yeast ferment at 100 degrees and other boundary-pushing ideas, is it really not possible to get a beer to convert at, say, 90 degrees? Uh, go for it, buddy. Nature will out. Yeah. It's called science. Yeah. Well, as we, as we were just discussing, yeah, science right. comes in many flavors here. But uh, no, you can, you can think about it. I mean, yeah, we do have 
lower acting amylases, like the amylase powder that you can buy at your homebrew shop, you know, that typically is happiest operating in a mash at say about 130 degrees. But why don't we have grain that does that? Well, I mean, aside from the, the engineering aspects that would have to go into actually getting the grain to produce the amylase that would work at that temperature and whether or not it would or whether or not it would take forever in a damn day. There's also the other part that you'd be impacting the storage qualities of your malt. Uh, what happens to the barley when it's sitting in the field and there's a, a late summer shower or as it's sitting in the grain silo? The grain silo is not <laughs> yeah. perfectly dry. You know, you're you're going to get a lot of accidental conversion down there at that lower temperature as well. So it really impact your storage. So there's a lot of reasons why you wouldn't want to do that to begin with. Yeah. And, and you know, as far as I know, given enough time, grain can convert somewhat at room temperature. But, you know, when you say, why can't we do it? It's like, well, because there's a, there's a reason. It, it just doesn't work like that. Now, that's not to say that somebody won't come up with a way to do it eventually, but it's beyond my comprehension. Maybe this is something we need to ask Seth about, huh? Yeah, probably. But again, I mean, I, like I said, I think no matter what, you'd be impacting your storage temperature. So there's a reason why you wouldn't even want it down that low to begin with. Right. So yeah, yeah. It, it it just doesn't seem like a good idea, and as far as we know, it can't be done. No, oh, I suspect it probably can. There's a lot we can do with gene editing. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. And then our next question comes from uh, Ken Collins from Kentucky. He says, "I just listened to episode 105 and I enjoyed the format of answering questions. Thank you. Uh, thank you much to both of you. After listening, I had a question about fermenting in a keg. How do you transfer to a serving keg without the dip tube clogging?" I ask this because I've never fermented in a keg. Dincenzo? Well, there's a couple ways. Uh, you can uh, cut the dip tube shorter, cut an inch or so off, and it'll be okay. Uh, I don't generally have a real issue with this. Uh, I can put enough pressure on the keg to uh, blow out any kind of clog that's in there. Uh, not always successfully, but, you know, there have been times I've ended up using a racking cane to empty a keg. But, you know, it's it's really not that much of an issue. Uh, don't you think so? Yeah. Uh, now, I have kegs that are dedicated to fermenting, and I actually do have shortened dip tubes in there. And I take about an inch off, and right. I just cold crash it, and that tends to take, take care of more, most of the yeast. Now, to Danny's point, what you can do is you can, if you've got the beer settled and you know the yeast cake's pretty far down and pretty tight, then, yeah, you could put enough pressure on there, blow out the first part of the yeast, and then, you know, once you get clear wort running or clear beer, pull the, uh, you know, pull that reset and, you know, let it flow into your final vessel, right? So, like, set up the jumper cable so that it will go into the keg. And I've done that plenty. I mean, that's really no different than what a lot of homebrewers do, where I've kegged my beer and put it into cold, and, ooh, there's a lot of yeast in it. And then, oh, don't worry, just pull the first pint. The first pint will be cloudy, and then after that, everything's clear, right? Same tactic. Yeah, I mean, and that that generally works pretty well. If you're doing something and you have a whole lot of trube, or, uh, you know, sometimes it just compacts really, really tight, uh, it, it does get difficult, but I have not found it to be that big a deal. And, uh, you know, like I said, I have fermenting kegs with the dip tube cut about an inch. I have fermenting kegs without the dip tube cut. And I generally haven't had too many problems. So give it a try, Ken. Yeah, and 
yeah, that first little bit might be a little sludgy, but uh, you know, afterwards you're fine. And again, remember there are better ways to do this in terms of getting rid of the the yeast and just give it time and maybe some gelatin. Yeah. Well, and again, what I do really is I use a, a transfer tube that has what are called flare fittings. They screw on mm-hmm. uh, the quick disconnects. So what I'll do is uh, I will start off with the sending keg without uh, a disconnect on on the you know the output end so I can just use that to blow out what's in the keg then I turn off the gas pull the pressure release to stop the flow screw on the disconnect attach that to the receiving keg and go on from there yep uh, kegs they're wonderful ah, yes. that's right Next question comes from Alex from Berlin. All right, man. Can you speak German? No. Okay. I can speak beer. (laughs) I guess that's all that's required. Alex says, it's no secret that you are very much into Saison's. No, it's no secret whatsoever. (laughs) I've had a couple of them, which I found okay, but not much better. I'm not the biggest fan of strong phenolic flavors. However, I had a Saison DuPont the other day. Oh, yes. And was blown away. A really enjoyable beer that I would like to brew an homage to. Surely, surely you have tried brewing a Saison that was shot in the direction of DuPont, right? How can I brew one like that? Cheers and thanks for all these episodes. Please say hi to Denny, too. I secretly enjoy the ukulele. Well, don't be secret about it, dude. Shout it to the skies. Alex, you're doing so well. (laughs) So, Drew, have you ever tried to brew anything like Saison DuPont? A few times. Um, so <laughs> here's here's the biggest things about it. Um, my Saison Experimental is sort of a table version of a, a DuPont-esque thing. But really, to me, DuPont is a fine balance between Pilsner malt, uh, some sugar, maybe a little Munich to give some uh, oranginess, and then uh, a, a fair but restrained hand with mostly noble-esque varieties of hops. And then after that, it's the yeast. Now, I'm actually surprised that, Alex, you're saying that you're not a big fan of strong phenolic flavors and that you really like DuPont because DuPont does have a fairly strong phenol character to it. Um, a lot of, uh, but it's usually more like the, say, black pepper uh, type phenol as opposed to anything that's like strongly clovey or medicinal, right. which may be what you're objecting to. Um, so for me, like I said, Pilsner, Munich, uh, maybe some wheat and some sugar. Noble hops. Take it up to, you know, say, make your base beer 1055-ish. Let it ferment down. You want it to be nice and aggressively dry. Uh, probably like, say, 30 IBUs, 35 IBUs. And then the trick, and this might be a trick for you in Berlin, although I think you have access to both. We'll have to double check. I like to mix both the Yeast 3724, which is their version of the DuPont strain, and the White Labs DuPont strain, which is WLP 565. And I've been doing that for years, and I think it gives you the most complete DuPont-esque character that you can get. So there you go. That's my tip for making a DuPont. And why don't you give them the tip on getting the DuPont yeast to ferment? Well, yeah, the, the other one is don't put an airlock or a blow-off tube on it. Just slap a piece of foil over your carboy or your fermenting bucket. Open ferment. Let that open ferment. I start at 63, let it rise up, uh, let it come up as high as it wants to go after a couple of days of fermentation at that lower temperature, and then you're good to go. Yep. It uh, it seems to work great, and uh, I can personally testify Drew knows how to make a Saison. Those I have sent you. 
Yeah. <laughs> or that I've had down there. And our next question comes from Michelle Wonder from Portland, Oregon, who says, I've been using the grandfather for the last year, and I love it. However, I'm curious as to how the counterflow chiller affects the cold break. I'm assuming that the cold break doesn't occur like it does when you use an immersion chiller, and as such, much more of the coagulated proteins are transferred in the fermenter. I have seen these excessive proteins in my fermenter and my hydro jar. What effect ultimately does this have on the fermentation process and the finished beer? Would a vigorous whirlpool help reduce these components in the runoff? Denny? Yeah. Um, actually, that true, those coagulated proteins are not a bad thing, actually. Um, like you say, probably more of it does end up in the fermenter, might end up in the fermenter, let's say that. Uh, whirlpooling first would help. Grandfather recommends whirlpooling at the end of the boil anyway, just so the filter on your pump doesn't clog. Uh, but yeah, ultimately you get more of those into your fermenter. Now, personally, I don't really go to any great lengths to try to keep them out, whether I'm using the grandfather or any other brewing system. That trube is a great source of fan, which is free amino nitrogen. And that actually acts as a yeast nutrient. The other thing I'll, I'll mention is that in some informal testing, uh, you know, this was never done to any great degree, but there was a guy many years ago on the Brews and Views forum. His results are unfortunately gone. And I believe Brewlosophy tried it too. And in general, beer that is fermented with trube in it in these two informal tests has been shown to be clearer and preferred in flavor over beer that had all the trube removed. Uh, another one of those go-figure moments, huh? So I would say, you know, do what you can to avoid it. Don't worry about it. And uh, it's not a terrible thing anyway. I agree. Uh, I'm not terribly obsessive about getting the trube out. And I don't think I've ever really experienced a problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, again... While commercial breweries don't always equate to homebrewing practices, uh, basically a commercial brewery is going to do nothing more than whirlpool the beer and then run it off to the fermenter, kind of the same thing you're talking about doing. So, Michelle, don't worry about it. Next question. Next question is for Drew, and it comes from Michael Meeks. Michael says, I've been traveling back and forth to Iceland for a few years now, and wow, what a lucky guy you are. And I've become a bit obsessed with a chocolate bar that has salt and licorice in it. I realize that pretty much no one in the States is going to find this tasty, but I really want to have a go at a stout that incorporates the flavors. Although most brewers would tell me to stick to all natural, I think I'm going to play with licorice extract. And there's, there's nothing necessarily not all natural about an extract. Mm -hmm. since that's what's in the candy. My biggest question revolves around adding salt post-fermentation. I've started to play with the flavors a bit when I open a bottle of a stout or porter that I previously brewed. I've added the salt and extract to the glass. I like where it may be going, but before I screw up five gallons, I wanted to get your input. At the moment, I've been using kosher salt, but I honestly have no idea what my best option is. I'd also like to know what adding salt for flavor will do to the pH post-fermentation. Any help or recipe advice would be much appreciated. I got some ideas, man, but what are yours? Well, okay, so I'm going to make a dangerous assumption here, which is one that the Icelandic tradition of licorice is right in line with the other Nordic countries, which is 
where it's, it's salty licorice, right? It's a, a salmiac or a, I've obviously just said that wrong. Uh, the big trick about that, if I remember correctly, is it's not salt as we're thinking about it normally. It's not sodium chloride. It's ammonia chloride. Really? Has now, a, that's very interesting. Yeah. Um, and so it's a slightly different uh, salt. I know, and I think there are some that are done with regular table salt, but the really sort of classical stuff is done with ammonium chloride, which gives it a way different flavor. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's start with the fact that yes, uh, Iceland and the Nordic countries uh, in general tend to have a a much stronger loved relationship with licorice than the rest of the world. I love black licorice, but I'm also weird. I love whorehound, um, and you know, I like old timey flavors. And even I will admit the salmiak is like that's a little difficult. <laughs> and I think in Iceland. They have the extra tradition of coating the licorice in chocolate. So, having said that, um, I think where you're starting with the salt and the extract to the glass is the right way to do it. It's what we always recommend, you know, particularly when you're playing around with very strong flavors that you don't have any experience with. Um, once you actually get this dialed in successfully, feel free to be willy-nilly about it. Um, but yeah, I, I would see... Try and get some uh, some of the the ammonia chloride and see um, ammonium chloride, and see if that actually makes a difference. Because I think if what you're really going for is that Nordic licorice flavor, that's kind of a key component to it. At least it is to me, and I suspect that will uh, change things. I don't think you're going to see um, much of a pH shift because <sighs> licorice and ammonium chloride, uh, from what I'm uh, reading have a slightly acidic pH to begin with, so it's like 5.5, 5. your beer is already going to be more acidic than that, and you're not going to be adding enough, I think, to move it. Yeah, so I, wouldn't the- wor- I wouldn't worry about your pH at all. Um, but yeah, try, try to get the sal ammonium and see if, uh, see if that gives you that little extra edge that you think that you're missing right now. Now, that's another weird question. I don't think I've ever thought about the, the interactions of ammonia and a beer. Yeah, I, you know, man, I just can't see that. I mean, if, if he is feeling like he's getting in the ballpark now, I just can't see why he would want to hassle with that. Uh, it may be yeah, the extra little push. That's, that's me and my keeping keeping it easy theory. Yeah. Uh, if if he's not satisfied with the salt character he's getting, yeah, that's that's a good way to go. Uh, you know, as opposed to ammonium chloride, uh, sodium chloride will add a bit of sweetness to the beer also. Uh, my dad just always put salt in his beer, which decarbonated it and made it a little bit sweeter. Yeah. I can't imagine anything sweeter than the Schlitz he was drinking back then, but whatever. Uh, but yeah, you're definitely on the, the right track there, Michael. So just keep playing and keep in touch with us and let us know how it goes. Yeah, and if it, tur- if it turns out, I'm actually curious. I would like to try it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you would. I can imagine. Yeah, because, I mean, the the um, the ammonium chloride is also going to give it a slightly tannic flavor. So I think that's uh, that, that may be why, like, from a flavor perspective, it might be worth playing with. But we'll see. All yeah, right. right. And our final question before we get you out of here today is from Ross Brookham. He says, question for you guys on shaken, not stirred, wort to vessel ratio. I'm doing some research for a club presentation on shaken, not stirred starters, and I had a thought. If the ideal ratio is four to five times your wort volume for your vessel, could you split the wort into two and do two smaller starters? 
For example, assume I have two liter growlers. I made a one liter starter and I split that between the two batches, 500 milliliters per growler. And I split fresh yeast pack, let's assume 200 billion cells, between the two vessels, 100 billion cells per 500 milliliter starter. I've now got two smaller starters with adequate work to vessel ratios. How would this affect the process versus, say, a one liter starter in a five liter media model? Obviously, Ross, we're just guessing here because neither of us has actually tried this. I would say it should be fine. Uh, I guess my only concern would be getting the starting yeast divided evenly between the two vessels. Although if you were pitching them both into one batch, it would certainly not make a whole lot of difference. Um, but, you know, I, I can't see anything wrong with that process whatsoever. And, you know, you're assuming a, a big cell count to start with. Yeah, okay, fine. That's absolutely fine. You're not going to be counting 100 billion cells into each vessel, I assume. Uh, and, you know, I don't. Again, with the shaken, not stirred method, cell count doesn't really matter as much. Uh, for the, the brown ale I was talking about earlier, I pulled an 11-month smack pack out of the fridge without even smacking it, uh, which is really unnecessary. I pitched it into my one-quart SNS starter, put that into a 1063 the next day at high croissant, and within 12 hours, I had fermentation just absolutely going crazy. So yeah, it's a lot more about the yeast health than the uh, cell count. But in terms of what you're proposing, that sounds okay to me. What do you think? I think it sounds fun. I, th- I want to see somebody you know acting as a bouncer and sitting there with a you know one of those clicker things trying to count one hundred billion. <laughs> yeah, right. No, 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 man. Sorry, we're full. You can't come in here. <laughs> But no, I think as long as you're in the ballpark, I think you're fine. Uh, the one risk, obviously, is that you know since you're going into two vessels and handling this twice, then you've got essentially double the infection risk. But let's assume that you know what you're doing in terms of sanitation and that you're safe. I think you're fine. Let me just pull up one of my uh, old homilies here. If you can't make a starter without infecting it, maybe you should consider taking up knitting for a hobby. Or skydiving. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, moving on. We have the quick tip and something other before we get out of here, and Drew's going to handle both of those today. Yep, and the first quick tip is pizza pans. Oh, I love pizza. That's right. I'm not talking about the pizza, though. I'm talking oh. about pizza pans, and particularly their multifunction use in a place like your brewery. Uh, so for me, you guys will remember, I've talked in the past that uh, I have a problem with rats trying to break into my garage and get into my grain. And I had these wonderful grain buckets, and the rats figured out how to get through the bucket lids to the grain below. Jerks. I was tempted <laughs> to throw one of my cats in the garage for a while. Ooh. Uh, yes, my wife wouldn't let me. Um, and so once I got rid of the rats that were in there, cleared it out, I needed to make sure that the grain stayed safe. So I And I also had all this investment in these bucket lids already, and they work wonderfully, except for one weakness. And so I went to Amazon, and I bought cheap metal pizza pans. And it turns out they fit perfectly over those gamma lids. And since then, I know a couple of rats have gotten back into my garage, and they've explored around those buckets, and they haven't been able to do a single damn thing to them. So pizza <laughs> pans for the win. All right, man, until they come up with, like, uh, metal teeth or, or some sort of cutters or something for them. Exactly. In which case... 
boy, are we screwed. Yeah. You know what? And I use, uh, I use cheap pizza pans too for lids on kettles. They uh, work really, really well for that. Uh, so, uh, go, go raid your kitchen or order some more pizza pans and, uh, see what you can find to do with them. Yeah. I mean, I think a three pack of pizza pans uh, on Amazon was like eight bucks. Wow. So not too bad. And from our quick tip to something other than beer, because of course, as much as we love beer, beer is not alone in life. We have other things. One of the things I've been missing recently has been fun sci-fi. So, so much of the modern science fiction that's really good science fiction has been, you know, sort of full of sturm and drang and just takes itself very, very seriously. And I kind of miss some just silly science fiction, you know, things like in the vein of a galaxy quest or even Star Trek. Um, and... I stumbled on, uh, you guys know I have a long commute, so I stumble on, like, you know, audiobooks all the time, and I stumbled on what had, I guess, been the best-selling audiobook on Audible in, like, 2016, or one of their top sellers, and it's a book called We Are Legion, We Are Bob, uh, by an author named uh, Dennis Taylor, and it is book one of what is currently a three-part series that they call The Bobiverse. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, and the whole story follows this guy named uh, Robert Johansson, who in you know recent times has gotten rich because he sold his software company to a rival and has taken a bunch of money. And the very first thing he does with his money is signs up to be cryogenically frozen in case of his death. And then proceeds to go off to dinner <laughs> to go enjoy his, his newfound wealth with his former colleagues who have also gotten – you know, part of the windfall from the sale of the company. And on his way back from dinner, is killed. So he's had exactly one day of being rich before he's killed. And then he's woken up in the future. You know, because the whole idea behind cryogenic freezing is that you're woken up when they can repair your body, et cetera, et cetera. And he's woken up in the, in the future only to discover that he is no longer in body, but he is now the AI powering a computer system that has been designed to explore the universe. Man, this sounds cool. Oh, it's it's funny because he becomes basically a von Neumann probe, which you know is like one of those high flutin science concepts of self replicating probes to explore the galaxy. So yeah, you know, they go out, they find a, a new new solar system, they mine the solar system for resources, they use three D printers or nano machines to assemble new versions of themselves and send those versions out into the rest of the galaxy. And the whole idea is these bonomium probes basically self-replicate and learn a lot about the galaxy without you know necessarily taking all the time, you know, to send one vessel from here to there. Um, but yeah, he becomes the AI behind this whole this whole fleet of Bobs exploring the galaxy, and it's all about the things they find and what they what they can do for humanity. And you know, of course, things happen. You know, and I'm up for anything called a Bobiverse. Well, and like I said, I mean. Is it the best written book in the world? No. But you know what it is? It's fun. And sometimes I just need some fun science fiction. Oh, so, yeah. So, again, that is We Are Legion, We Are Bob, The Bobiverse Book One by Dennis Taylor. And there are three books currently, and the fourth book is in flight. Uh, we Are Legion, For We Are Many, and All These Worlds. <laughs> well, there you go. If your name is Bob, you need to read that book. Yeah, exactly. Uh so, by all means, 
We are Legion. Okay, we are getting out of here, too, and let you guys get on with your day. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I hang out on a lot of different beer forums, uh, but mainly the AHA discussion forum. You can find Drew on the Homebrewing subreddit and the Slack Homebrewing channel. Don't forget that if you want to ask us a question, suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, we like those too. You can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to uh, get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And you can always leave us a voicemail or send us a text at 626-765-1AL. That's 626-765-1253. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.